The following message is by Justin Duran, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Good morning. Good. <laughs> I like that. Uh, good morning. It is so good to see you here today. If you don't know me, that's all right, but my name is Pastor Justin. It is my great honor and privilege to be one of the pastors and elders here at Creekside Bible Church, and we are very, very glad that you are with us this morning. Now would typically be the time that our children would exit and go to Children's Church. However, today we are uh, having the great honor and privilege of, of observing the Lord's Supper, communion. And when we do that, we keep our children with us so they can see what it's like, uh, see, have that modeled for them and worship with their families. And, and so we will have our children with us today. So children, welcome. We are glad that you are here too. This week has been uh, a bit exciting for me as I have set about uh, the task of writing uh, this sermon and studying these things. Exciting because I get to be in the Gospel of Luke and exciting because I get to study God's Word, but exciting also in that kind of other way where things just get frantic and a little bit crazy, and it seems that everybody wants a little bit more of your time than there are hours in the day, and yet you still have a task <laughs> to complete. And I know that many of you are familiar with that kind of scenario. And so as a result, if I'm being perfectly frank and honest with you this morning, I have a little bit of that nervous energy, a little bit of that excitement that's going on, and a little bit of tension. And I would just like, as we start this morning, uh, to enter into God's Word through some prayer with you all. So let's do that. Awesome and amazing God, sovereign Lord of the universe, the great I am, Lord, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ Jesus. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we thank you for your church, your sheep. We thank you for one another. And Lord, as we turn our attention to studying your word, Lord, I just pray, even for myself selfishly, Lord, that you would calm my heart and mind. Lord, I pray that we as a body would focus entirely on your will, on your word. Lord, would we set aside the distractions of the day, the distractions of our life? Would we focus intently on who you are, on your will, on your word? Lord, would your word go out in power from this place? Would hearts be stirred in their affection for Christ Jesus? Lord, we love you. In everything that we do, would you be glorified? In Jesus' name, we pray these things together. Amen. Amen. So one of the exciting things as we continue talking about Emerge, and as Pastor Cliff always reminds us on staff, we are still merging. That is still something that is ongoing, that hasn't been completed yet. So uh, remember always that the second rule of church mergers is... Flexibility. Uh, that doesn't have tons to do with our sermon today, uh, but I just want to remind us of it anyway. But as we talk about the merge, one of the exciting things about the merge is the building of this team that's come together, particularly on staff and in, in ministry. It's exciting to see how these different pieces fit together. And as we're starting to move in this new mechanism that is our new merge church CBC, it's interesting to see how each of us kind of fit into the driving of that mechanism. Building a team is a really important thing. 
uh, building a team can also be a very complicated thing. Have you ever been tasked with building a team? Whether it's for your job or, or for volunteer work here at the church, or maybe uh, when you were playing at recess in elementary school and you were the team captain. Has that ever been you? You ever built a team? Or, or maybe you've never been much of the leadership type. I know several people in this room kind of shy away from those types of positions. Uh, so maybe you've been in the position of being a part of a pool of candidates for the membership on a team or some position in an organization. Perhaps you've interviewed once or twice or 25 times for a job in your lifetime. See, no matter what the situation, whether it's leisure or whether it's professional, no matter what your position, whether you're the candidate or the selector, there's kind of one common thread of understanding that underscores all of these circumstances. Most often, not always, but most often, the qualifications of the candidate influence or determine the selection of that candidate, right? If you're interviewing for an engineering position in an aerodynamics division of an auto manufacturer, and the only experience and education you've ever had is in web design, it shouldn't come as a terrible shock to you when you're not selected to fill that position, right? If you're the dodgeball team captain in elementary school, and the winning team from PE gets extra free time after recess, who are you going to try and avoid selecting? Now, this might not be politically correct, but let's be honest. You're going to avoid selecting the slow, fat kid with asthma and allergies that can't throw. You don't want him on your team. At least not at first, you know? It's always the kid that gets picked last, and you'll take him on your team, right? But you're not going to go out of your way to select him. People naturally evaluate qualifications like talent, intelligence, education, experience, personality, attitude, and kind of general ability when selecting others for a given task. And people are often trying to grow in each of these areas of qualification so that they are more desirable as a candidate. This is a very natural process, and there isn't anything inherently wrong with doing things this way. It helps us to ensure that we're assembling the best team for a given task, selecting the best person for the job. But when it comes to Christ, how does he choose? When we look at the Bible, do we see that Christ follows this model of evaluating people based on their natural abilities or their educated talents? How does Christ choose people? What are the qualifications that he's looking for? As we continue on in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we come to Luke 5, 27 through 32. And we see this short but extremely exciting account of yet another disciple being called into service by Christ. And as we examine this question, what are the qualifications to be called as a disciple of Christ? We're going to look at a few things. We'll look to understand Levi's condition before receiving the call. Next, we'll examine Levi's reaction and his response to the call. We'll then consider Levi's condition after responding to the call. And finally, we'll see why Christ issued the call to Levi in the first place. However, 
Before we do any of that, I want to take just a few brief moments and I want to define some terms. Particularly, I want to define a term. What does it mean when we use this term called or the call? Now, I'm sure that many of you already know this, and so it will likely be a review for some of you. But that's okay because some of us might not know, and it's important for me that we all start kind of on a level playing field with even bases. So far in chapter 4, and now here in chapter 5, we've been given excellent examples of two types of calls that we see in the Bible. They're important types of calls, but they're different types of calls. The first one that we see is academically referred to as the general call or the gospel call. And that's precisely what it is. It's the gospel call. It's the proclamation of God's word. It's the declaration of everyone's need for the righteousness of God to be imparted on them. And the instructions to faith and repentance and obedience. It's the call of the gospel. The call to respond to the righteousness of God. We see examples of this in, in chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, when it says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Or directly after that, in verses 16 through 27, where we see that Luke tells us that it was Christ's custom to be in the synagogue teaching on the Sabbath. Verses 31 and 32 of chapter 4 tell us that Christ was in Capernaum and he was teaching on the Sabbath and that they were amazed by his teaching because his message was taught with authority. As a matter of fact, after this, after he had healed a bunch of people and cast out some demons, people were looking for Christ and they were trying to hold him and keep them there. They didn't want to let him leave. And in verses 43 and 44, Christ explains what his purpose is. He says in verse 43 of chapter 4, but he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. See, this is what the general call is. It's the preaching and teaching of God's kingdom. It's a call that goes out to everyone. Notice, if you read back through those accounts, we don't see swarms of people coming to faith and repenting in those accounts. But the call is going out nonetheless. Christ is faithfully teaching and preaching the kingdom of God as was his purpose. The teaching is there. The call is present. Another kind of call that we see in the Gospel of Luke is what is uh, there again academically referred to as the effectual call. Or, or sometimes, albeit less frequently, you might see it or hear people refer to it as the internal calling or the persuasive call. Personally, I see kind of both of those terms uh, as misnomers, and so I don't typically use them. But if you're familiar with either of those terms, then, then in essence, the effectual call and the eternal calling or the persuasive calling, they're, they're interchangeable kind uh, of phrases. And I just choose and prefer to use the term effectual call because I think it's most accurate. But what is the effectual call? Well, as simply as I can explain it, it's this. Because of Adam's original sin... The curse that was found in Genesis 3 that subsequently resulted from that sin, 
As a result, all people are born in a sinful state, everybody. And we are desperately lost in our own all-encompassing depravity. And we are thusly entirely incapable of changing the disposition of our own hearts away from sinful self-love, self-worship, self-idolatry, and changing that instead to be inclined towards the worship and adoration and loving of God the Father. We can't do that on our own. Unless God, by a special working of his Holy Spirit, grants someone a measure of faith as we see in Romans 12, 3, and the ability to repent as we see mentioned in Acts chapter 11 or 2 Timothy 2, their heart will never be opened to God. They will never believe. The opening of their heart, this opening that God works in them of their heart, this is what we refer to as the effectual call. A call that brings about a change in the heart of someone. And as we look at Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, the effectual call of Christ to Levi is the call that I'll be referring to. So when you hear me use this term, the call, that's what I mean. And, and the truth is, it's not the first time we've seen this type of call in the Gospel of Luke. So far, in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen Christ's effectual call go out to Peter, to James, and to John. And if we take the other Gospels into account as well, it's reasonable to say that his call has also gone out to Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, depending on which chapter you're reading in. It's the same guy. And all of these men have received the call and responded by following Jesus. But as we look at the call of Levi, who, by the way, identifies himself as Matthew when he's writing the Gospel of Matthew, so that's from here on out how I will refer to him. Never let it be said that Justin, uh, you know, dead-named poor Matthew. We don't want that to happen. But anyway, as we continue on to examine the call of Matthew, it seems that there are some stark differences between Matthew and the other men that were called before him. So we know that Peter and James and John were all fishermen. Perhaps Andrew was as well, I, I, I don't know. But we do know from the Gospel of John chapter 1 that, that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. And this means that he was at least already interested in God's word. Bare minimum, interested in God's word and the truth of the kingdom that John the Baptist was preaching. We know from Luke 4, 38 and 39, that, that Peter was likely a faithful guy and even welcomed Christ into his home. And we see that when Christ goes into his home and heals Peter's mother-in-law. We don't know much about Philip or Bartholomew, but we know uh, that Philip was from the same city as Andrew and Peter. And that he was the kind of man who immediately went out and told his friends about Christ and brought his friend to Christ. We also don't know that much about Bartholomew, but we do know from Christ's own words that he was a forthright and honest man. See, as we look at all of the Gospels and we consider these other disciples that were called before Matthew, we can find, if we're looking, something about each of them that might cause any single one of us, if we were trying to assemble a team, to look at them and say, there might be something of merit there. Maybe there's something about this guy. This guy's a hard worker, and he spends his free time listening to preachers. And this guy actually works with a preacher and an evangelist. And, 
And we can look at these men and we can see maybe something of merit in them. What about Matthew? Is it the same when we look at Matthew? What is his condition before receiving the call? Is there something we can look at and say, oh, there it is. That's what the thing is about Matthew. That's what makes him special. That's his shimmer. Well, let's look at what we can learn about who Matthew was before he was called by Christ. If we look at Luke chapter 5, verses, starting in verse 27, it says this. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Okay, so apart from his name, which we see here as Levi, what else do we learn about who Matthew was from this short section of Scripture? Well, we see that he was a tax collector. As a matter of fact, we see that he was a tax collector who was currently going about the business of collecting taxes. That's what we see. And not only was he a man that was going about the business of collecting taxes, we know if we look at Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13, that Jesus was walking near the Sea of Galilee on the shore when he saw Matthew and told him to come and follow him. So the Bible gives us a very clear indication that Matthew was a tax collector in Capernaum because we know that that's where Christ was, along the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is actually a giant freshwater lake located sort of smack dab in the middle of the length of the River Jordan. And the fishing there would have been excellent many, many times throughout the year, most times throughout the year, because it acted as a, as a giant thoroughfare from both receiving uh, the Jordan and feeding down uh, the Jordan. So a lot of spawning fish would have been there. Uh, and this, coupled with the relatively consistent weather patterns that the Sea of Galilee experienced, would have made uh, this uh, uh, an excellent place to be accessed by boat. It would have made it an extremely attractive way by which to travel or to transport goods across a really vast distance and have a central hub with which to do commerce in there in the center. The Sea of Galilee was that. It was an economic hub in the region. And Capernaum, where we see this account taking place at the time, was the largest city on the Sea of Galilee. Also, we know that Capernaum was, was a major crossroads for the east and west, north and south trade route. It was where everything came together. This was a highly traveled economic thoroughfare. And the text shows us that Matthew's tax booth was sitting on prime tax-collecting real estate. So in all likelihood, not only was Matthew a tax collector who was sitting there going about the business of collecting taxes, his tax business was likely booming. He was probably doing very well as he set about doing the business of taxes. And I say going about the business of taxes for a reason. Because in the Roman Empire, which the nation of Israel was a part of at this time, they didn't just go and occupy places militarily and then just sit there. Part of the whole reason for the expansion of the Roman kingdom was to implement and impose taxes on those people that they subjugated. Now, <clears throat> I know it's kind of difficult for us in California to understand this because sometimes we just get used to living this way all the time. 
but an ever-increasing and complicated tax system that's foisted upon the citizenry under the threat of loss of life or liberty is really just a method for the systematic generation of revenue without actually having to produce anything. In other words, to make it simple, it's taking at the point of a sword the wealth which someone else has produced and generated and giving them nothing in exchange. We call that theft. It's also a system that inherently lends itself to the deepest levels of corruption. And this is precisely what have been, would have been going on in this region at this time. You see, Herod, King Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, all these different names apply to him, was the ruler of Galilee, and he reported directly to Rome. And he had to pay taxes to Rome so that he could keep his leadership over this region. And instead of setting about collecting those taxes himself, he, like many other Roman rulers, would instead sell franchise tax rights or tax franchise rights to enterprising indigenous people, in this case, to enterprising Jewish people. And the way that that would work is that tax collectors had a certain amount that they were required to give to Herod. Herod needed his cut, and then Herod would take a portion off the top and send the rest to Rome. And tax collectors at that point were permitted to tack on whatever additional amount or percentage they felt was reasonable and keep that for themselves. And just understanding even that kind of cursory overview of how the tax system worked, you can see how this would lend itself to terrible deceit and corruption. When, Herod is, when Rome is saying, I, I don't care what you get, I just need to get mine. And Herod is saying, I don't care what you get, I just need to get mine. The tax collectors then say, I don't care what you have, I just need to get mine. And that's what was going on here. Tax collectors would extort unjust taxes from the people in areas in which they bought these franchise rights. This is why back in Luke chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, after baptizing several tax collectors, Christ tells them to take no more than what they have been ordered to take. He very plainly tells them, just take no more than what you've been ordered to take. He doesn't have to know anything about them, even though he's Christ. He doesn't have to know anything about them. This was just assumed. This was what the normal operating practice for tax collectors were. They were swindlers. That's what they did. As a result, tax collectors were absolutely loathed, truly hated by the Jews. See, not only does nobody like being stolen from and extorted, but in addition to that, the Jews believed that only God should be the one to whom they paid any taxes. That was their belief. Tax collectors were viewed as traitors as a result. Their fellow Jews classified them not only as treacherous, but also as unclean. There's actually a whole section in the Talmud that talks about tax collectors and how to deal with them as if they are ceremonially unclean. And as a result, tax collectors weren't even allowed to go to the synagogue or temple. And because they were viewed as treacherous, deceiving, lying people, they weren't permitted to give a testimony in any Jewish court. And generally speaking, even repentance was viewed as something that was very, very difficult for tax collectors to participate in. 
This is why the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that we see later in Luke chapter 18 would have been so particularly impactful for the people hearing it because this idea that a treacherous, lying, thieving tax collector could come to repentance would just be mind-boggling. All throughout the New Testament, we see examples where the term tax collector is held in absolute equation with the worst kinds of people. Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, it says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Behold, a gluttonous, gluttonous man and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. They equate tax collectors and sinners. Matthew 18 tells us that if someone is in a continued unrepentant sin, and they've gone through the church discipline process, and they still have yet to repent, we are to treat them how? as a Gentile and a tax collector, meaning that we're to have nothing to do with them. We're to treat them as if they are unclean. And Matthew 21, verses 31 and 32 say this, which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. There's an equation there between tax collectors and prostitutes. And this would have been a tremendously scandalous thing to say to somebody or say that, that these people would enter the kingdom before you. Because as the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And if you see, tax collectors have now just been thrown in with the same level of atrocious sin as those who are sexually immoral. Over and over and over through the Bible, we see the tax collectors reviewed very poorly. And the name tax collector, to be labeled that, was the same as to be labeled sinner, prostitute, heathen, unclean. Before responding to the call of Christ, this is who Matthew was. He was hated. He was detested. He was loathed by everyone around him. And he was viewed as absolutely unclean. People wouldn't eat with him. They very likely wouldn't openly do business with him. They wouldn't talk to him or touch him. And it wasn't just because they were being holier than thou or cranky. No, the truth is that the man was a swindler. He was a liar. He was a thief. He was an extortionist who would hire thugs to assist him in robbing people, and not just robbing any people, but robbing his own people. Matthew was not a good man. We have no indication anywhere in the Bible that Matthew was in some form or in some kind of way an exception to what would have generally been the rule for tax collectors. He wasn't a fisherman that went and hung out and listened to John the Baptist in his free time. He wasn't the brother of a fisherman who went to help John the Baptist and be one of his disciples. This was likely not a man who spent his day consumed pondering the eccentricities of righteousness. He wasn't even allowed in the synagogue. As a matter of fact, Matthew likely only hung out with other sinners, other detested people, as he attested to in his own account of his calling in Matthew chapter 9, in verse 10, when it says, Then it happened that Jesus was reclining at the table, and in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining 
with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew's only friends were people just like him. Sinners. This is who Matthew was when Christ called him. So what's Matthew's response to the call? What do we see happen next? What is the response of this sinful, deceitful, traitorous thief when Christ calls him? Well, let's look at the text. Starting again in verse 27, going through 28, we see it say this. After that, he, Jesus, went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi, who is Matthew, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. So let me paint a little picture uh, uh, here for you of what's going on. Jesus just finished healing this paralytic man like we saw uh, before. He told him to get up and walk and pick up your stuff and go home, and the guy does. And everybody there in this large group of people who was following Christ is astonished by what has just happened, and they begin glorifying him. And then it says, after that, Jesus went and saw Levi. The proximity of these events seems to be very, very close as we look at the gospel narratives. So Jesus is walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Matthew sitting in the tax booth. And this is the word that it uses when it says that he saw him. In Greek, the word is theomai. And the meaning is that it's a look of intent, uh, an intent look to look intently or to fix your gaze. This isn't just a passing glance that Jesus sees. He's not walking along the shore and sees Matthew and then just uh, passes by him. There's an intent fixed gaze. And so there's this scene with his disciples and likely a large crowd of people walking behind him as he's teaching them along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he looks and he sees Matthew and he fixes his eyes on him. And then he says to Matthew, follow me. And what does Matthew do? Well, it says here he left everything behind. He got up and he walked away from his tax booth. Now, I don't think that this means that Matthew immediately abandoned all his wealth and his possessions. We, we know that that couldn't be the case because in the very next verse, he's throwing a big party at his big house for Jesus. He hasn't just abandoned everything that he owns. Uh, in doing this. But the word that's used here in Greek is pas. It's the same word that we see used in verse 11 when Peter and the others left their nets and their boats and their fishing gear. Uh, it's an adjective that's kind of acting like a noun. And it's conveying the idea that the total of the thing that there was, there was left. The total sum of it was left. So Matthew isn't just walking away from a toll booth. No, if we look at the language, it would seem to suggest he's walking away from his lucrative business. He's walking away from his source of revenue. He's walking away from a life of extortion and of theft and deceit and corrupt living. And while this isn't necessarily any greater sacrifice than the other disciples for him, it's certainly a bit different, isn't it? There's a little bit of a difference that we see here. Sure, Peter, James, and John, pass, walked away from everything, from their boats, from their nets. But it's not like they can unlearn how to be commercial fishermen, right? It's not like they walked away from knowing how to do that. I mean, sure, they could likely have to replace their equipment uh, if they came back, replace their boats, their nets. 
but they could return to fishing any time that they wanted, couldn't they? As a matter of fact, we see Peter, James, and John do just that after Christ is murdered. In John 21, verse 3, it says this, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. And they went out into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. So maybe they weren't very good fishermen, but they went back to fishing. Now, now, I don't think that this, by the way, is an example of Peter, James, and John returning to their old trade so much as it just men who were hurting and caring about each other, going and doing what they know how to do. It was their default setting. But it illustrates very clearly that it would have been very, very easy for each of these men to return to what they were doing before they were called by Christ. This isn't the same flexibility that, that Matthew would have had. Even if he had wanted to return to being a collect, tax collector for some reason, perhaps uh, one that didn't extort and cheat people, we knew that they could exist like we saw in Luke. Jesus says, go keep being a tax collector, just don't rob from people. So we know that they exist. But even if he had had the inclination to do that, he likely would not have been able to. It's not exactly like King Herod was going to sit around waiting for three years for Matthew to come back and start collecting taxes on this very lucrative tax thoroughfare. He would have been replaced. And it's also unlikely that he would have been permitted to purchase another franchise after abandoning the first one, even if he still had the means to buy one. When Matthew was walking away from Pas, when he was walking away from everything, there was a definite permanency to his actions. We see from Matthew's actions that there is an immediate break from his old manner of thinking, an immediate break from his old manner of living, an immediate break from his old manner of understanding how the world worked. And this is supported by the language in the text when we see uh, it says, and got up and began to follow. The language here that's used is uh, anistomy, uh, akalatheo. And now, uh, anistomy, it means, it means to purposefully get up or to rise to life. And akalatheo, it means to follow after and obey. This wasn't a casual decision made by Matthew to go and check out this Jesus guy for a while. This moment, this getting up and beginning to follow, this was evidence of a heart that was pouring out repentance. And that is exactly how Matthew responded to the call of Christ. We ask the question, how does he respond? It's an immediate debarkation from his former path. It's an immediate heart change, an immediate pouring out of repentance. So what does Matthew look like after the call? We've seen now what Matthew looked like before the call. We see his response to the call. What does he look like after the call? Well, just in case we needed further proof or indication of the transformation that we just witnessed take place in the life and in the heart of Matthew, as if walking away from everything wasn't enough, we then immediately get to see the nature of his condition now. Starting in verse 29, it says, And Levi gave a big reception for him, for Christ, in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. We see that his first inclination is to do what? It's to celebrate Christ. His first inclination after following after Jesus is to celebrate Christ. 
It doesn't say that he was throwing this big party for himself. It wasn't his retirement party. I'm not going to be a tax collector anymore. Let's blow it all to the wind. No, it says that he threw a big reception for whom? For Christ. For Christ. And I don't think that we're talking about like an impromptu barbecue with burgers and hot dogs here, folks. Like when I throw a big event impromptu in an afternoon, that's what it means. Like I'm, I'm inviting like six people over to have burgers and hot dogs and maybe I'll throw like a can of nacho cheese on if we have one sitting on the shelf, right? That's not what we see here. The Bible uses this word megas when referring to this reception. And the Bible also says there was a great crowd, poly, many people that came which indicates that Matthew's house was likely a very big house. And this word megas, I don't know if it sounds familiar to you, but uh, mega, big, gigantic, enormous mega party for Christ with lots and lots of people. That's what Christ does. Now, as I look around at this room, I, I know several of you, and I know that the answer to this is already yes, but ha have any of you ever planned a big party or an event? I know some people in the room that even have done that professionally, throwing big things for big reasons. It's hard work, isn't it? It's exhausting. It's expensive. Now, imagine throwing a big event for a big reason that's exhausting and expensive and takes all this work and doing it in an afternoon. This is what Matthew does. We immediately see that he sets about serving and honoring Christ Right then, right then he sets about serving and honoring Christ. He's being generous with his home. He's being generous with his money. He's being generous with his hospitality. And instead of trying to keep Christ all for himself, as we've seen other people do throughout the narrative so far, instead, what does Matthew do? He invites the only people that will have anything to do with him. Fellow sinners, come be near Christ. I'm opening my home, I'm opening my wallet, I'm opening my kitchen, I'm opening my life. I've set all these things down and I'm giving this all away. Come and be near Jesus. Let me serve him. Let me be a good host and throw a big party in his honor. This is what we see Matthew immediately do. So what is Matthew's condition after the call? It would seem from the text that his condition is one of complete change from where it previously was. No longer is he marked by selfishness or greed and deceit. No longer does it seem that he's seeking gain for himself by bleeding out others. Instead, he's giving out and he's pouring out. And what's more is he's calling out that others might come and be near Jesus. Friends, if you are in Christ today, I have to ask you, what's your current condition? What is your current condition? Do you look exactly the same way or similar to the same way as you did before he called you? Do you think the same way? Do you act the same way? Do you do the same things? Have you been conformed to the patterns of this world? Or have you been, like it says in Romans 12, transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, I told you when we started this sermon that it was an exciting section of Scripture. But why? Why is it exciting? Is it simply because we get to see a disciple called? 
Is it purely because we get to see the response and this subsequent reformation of Matthew and his heart? Well, those things are extremely cool. Yes, they're extremely exciting, but that's not why I said that this section of Scripture is extremely exciting. This section of Scripture is exciting because the truth is, is that each and every person here today is currently now or previously was just like Matthew. While there might be room for people to make an argument about Peter or James or John or Andrew or Philip or Bartholomew, there is no mistaking who Matthew was before Christ. And each of us are just like him, deceitful, selfish. We're sinners. As it says in Ephesians 2, dead in our sins and trespasses. All of us, each and every one of us, are in desperate need of Christ, our only Savior, who has, as the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. And if we do, like it says in Acts or Chapter 3, where it says, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come. If we follow after Matthew's example, as the Bible commands us, and confess our sins, there's a beautiful truth that comes from us. So, so why is this so exciting? Why is this so exciting? How could I possibly stand here and say that the fact that we are sinners is exciting? That's a bold statement to make. Maybe a perilous one. Well, if we read the rest of this scripture, we see why that's exciting. Starting in verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. So I want you to see what happened here. These self-proclaimed a men of righteousness, these Pharisees and scribes, these very holier-than-thou sort of guys, come along and they grumbled. And they asked Christ why he would associate with sinners such as these. And the text gives indication that they weren't really asking this to receive an answer, but instead that they posed this question as a form of indictment against Christ and his disciples. They were being very accusatory in what they were doing. They were looking down their nose at Christ and his disciples. Why would you sit with these kinds of people? What would you have anything to do with them? But look how Christ responds. He tells these men who believe themselves to be more holier than anyone else that he didn't come for the well, but for these sick these men who think that they're well, these men who think that they're okay. Christ is saying, I didn't come to impress you. I didn't come to serve you. I came for those who are not well. Now, the sad irony of this is that those Pharisees and those scribes were likely the most spiritually unhealthy people in this narrative. But they didn't realize their need for repentance. They didn't realize their lack of compassion for the lost. Matthew already has displayed that kind of heart, hasn't he? A heart of re repentance and compassion for the lost. And they didn't realize that they were void of this. They didn't realize that for all their ceremonial cleanliness, there was nothing of merit in it. It was useless. 
because their moral standards, according to God's scripture, were bankrupt. And this is why Christ, as recorded by Matthew in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, when he recounts this exact same story, uh, he, he recounts Christ as having said this, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He says to them, Christ says to them, you who think you know so much, go get some education. Go learn something. And then he quotes Hosea 6.6. And he tells them, in essence, that the disposition of their hearts is far more important than their ceremonial cleanliness. And then here it is. The coup de grace. The reason that Matthew was chosen by Christ. The only prerequisite qualification needed for being called as a disciple of Christ. Look with me, if you will, at verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Did you see that? He came to call sinners in need of repentance, friends. That's why this scripture is exciting. It's exciting because guess what I am? Guess what you are? Guess what we all are? Sinners. Sinners in need of repentance. This is what makes it exciting. Now, I don't want anyone to misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that we should celebrate in our sinfulness. We shouldn't rejoice that we are sinful. As Paul says in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. So I'm not trying to tell us that we should be excited and rejoice because we're sinners, we shouldn't celebrate our sinfulness, but what I am saying is that we can thank God that the prerequisite qualification needed for being called as a disciple of Christ isn't anything any more complicated than this. Because if even a shred of our own holiness was necessary for us to come to Christ, we'd all be desperately lost. If even a shred of holiness self-generated in ourself was what was needed for us to come to salvation, then heaven would be an empty, empty place. We need Christ. We need the great physician that came to heal those who are sick. We need our Savior who came to call sinners to repentance. And that's exactly what he's doing today. Now, not just here for Matthew, but here for you. Christ is commanding you to repent of your sinfulness and to follow him to new life, to obey. 
This is where it's extremely exciting. Like I said in Acts chapter 3 earlier, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come upon, uh, may come from the presence of the Lord. If we follow Matthew's example and repent and do as the Bible commanded us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, it says he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is why it's exciting, because just like Matthew, when he calls, if we respond with absolute repentance and this transformed heart that seeks to serve and honor God, then we can stand fully on the promises of the Lord. We can stand on the promises of God's word and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are saved in Christ Jesus, made new in the call that Christ has called us to. Just like Matthew, repentant, redeemed. As Pastor Derek comes to lead us in the Lord's Supper today, I want us to carefully consider the great gift of repentance. I want us to carefully consider the awesome sacrifice made that we might come to know the redemption that we see modeled before us in Matthew. Let's pray together. Awesome God, amazing Father, King of the universe, Redeemer of your people, Lord, thank you. Thank you that we, even though we are sinners, can be made new in Christ Jesus. That by your spirit, through your call, our hearts might be softened and inclined to love the Lord. That we would be granted the gift of belief. That we would be granted the gift of repentance. And Lord, oh, that we would repent. Lord, would we be a people marked by our love for you and our eagerness to repent and put to death sin, and live to righteousness? Would we follow in Matthew's example and immediately turn from our former manner of living and instead with all that we have and are seek to honor and praise the Lord Jesus Christ and bring other people near him that they might do the same? And as we come together and worship you now through the observing of your ordinance in the Lord's Supper, Lord, we pray that you would help us to examine our hearts, that we would repent, knowing, Lord, that you are faithful and righteous to forgive. We love you, we praise you, and we do these things together in Jesus' name. Thank Amen. you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.